the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace. It is the 17th of September, 2020. And oh, what a show I have for you today. Uh, it's quite a long one. I just We we ended up speaking for f- forever. And we, we could have carried on talking for twice as long as this podcast was recorded. In fact, I think we, we almost did after we stopped recording. Uh, I speak to the Urban Huntsman. It's Urban Huntsman on Instagram, which is uh, my friend, an amazingly talented photographer, Danny Christensen. We go from his early life in a hobby farm uh, in Denmark to being a high-end fashion photographer in New York, back to the foothills of Italy, hunting public lands in the state of New York, to, to fishing the coastline, to connecting with nature and, and food and his desire to, to communicate this connection with nature to the world. Uh, it, it's an incredible conversation. So I, I'm going to make my intro as quick as possible so that you can dive into this. Of course, I have to thank the Patreon supporters, uh, which this week at the top tier include Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RDContracting.co.uk, Tom McCraith, James Benjamin Normandale, James Marchington, the guys at South Ayrshire Stalking, Josh Starling, Thomas Cameron, and Mark Zabrowski. If you would like to support the podcast, and it is massively appreciated, whether you're a top tier and get your name shouted out, or you are donating a dollar a month, which isn't even a cup of coffee, uh, it makes a massive difference and really, really helps me bring these shows to everybody. Uh, you can do that by heading over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. And if you want to follow me on any of the socials, I should now be just at Byron J. Pace everywhere. If you search Byron J. Pace on any of the social platforms, you should find me. And of course, if you want to have a look at the website, it is thepacebrothers.com. And you can check out the shop there. You can order Modern Huntsman through there. Uh, You can see some of the films that we've been involved in uh, over the years. And of course, all the podcasts are there and extra show notes. We had a competition two weeks ago to win a copy of Modern Huntsman. And uh, I made it for the very first time a Twitter competition. I was asking for you to, to comment and share something about the podcast on Twitter. And quite a lot of you did, even though we don't have all that many uh, Twitter followers, either on the, the podcast channel uh, or my own personal channel, which is the main one that I use, which is at Byron J. Pace. But I picked a person at random who said, this podcast is the one that got me into podcasts. Highly recommended. Uh, thank you very much, Paper Case, which is at Yorks underscore paper i think that's the oh uh, at york's underscore paper case so i'm not entirely sure what your name is but you live in nottingham so contact the show and i will send you a copy of modern huntsman and of course we're going to be running another competition to to win a copy we are currently working on the next volume right now which is blowing my mind we are that far uh, through the years we're working on volume six as I'm recording this. And uh, Volume 5 is sadly out of stock, but we will be doing a reprint. But we have Volumes 1 to 4 sitting in the shops waiting to go. And uh, if you would like to win a copy of Volume 3, that's what we're giving away on this show. Uh, I'm going to make it uh, very specific. So I apologize if you're not an Instagram user, and I apologize if you're not an Instagram user who uses stories. But we have a show, we have a competition on every show, so I have to think up variety for these. So all I'm going to ask you to do 
is share this podcast in uh, in your Instagram story. So I'll always post about the show in my Instagram stories, probably a couple of times over the two weeks between the long form shows. Uh, so you can either share that or put in your story where you're listening or, or something. Just put it in your stories. Make sure you tag me so that I can see it. You know, I'm at Byron J. Pace, and I will pick a winner at random from those people who have posted in their stories. Of course, if you want to read more about Modern Huntsman, uh, head over to www.modernhuntsman.com. And actually, you can go and check out my most recent monthly column. Well, I've just started it, so I only have uh, one article up there. But if you have a look at uh, the monthly columns on there, I have an article where I talk about uh, earthworms in the Arctic and peatlands and so- carbon sequestering and peatlands in Scotland. Um, so very environmentally focused, and uh, I'm really looking forward to, to building that out you know, over the over the next year and contributing environmental conservation-based science to the Modern Huntsman website. So with all of that said, let's get into the show. Danny, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I can't believe that it has taken this long for us to sit down and re- record together because uh, we've known of one, one another for quite some time. I think I was following you on Instagram before you were published in Modern Huntsman, but we had the chance to actually meet up in person. It was like the weird modern world is that you feel like you have relationships with people even if you've never met them before. And we had a chance to meet up in person last year because you were doing some work in, in Scotland. I was, yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you, of course. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a while. We've been trying to to make this happen for um, for quite some time now. Um, I was in, yeah, I was in Scotland last year and uh, I knew that you were somewhere in the neighborhood, so I figured I'll let me just see if you're yeah, actually that's right. relatively close, and, and you were 15 that's minutes right. away from where I was. Yeah, so. I know. I remember now. You're like, oh, Scotland's not a big place. Uh, I'm going to be in the country. Do you live anywhere? It was near Glen Clover. Yeah, yeah. And I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that's I can Clover. almost see up Glen Clover from where my house is. So. Yeah, you're like, oh well, you're up the road, so maybe a beer is in place. <laughs> yes, and, and we a beer we did, yeah, and it was good. It was too brief, but it was good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, tell me, just before we get into, um, well, we're going to dive into a whole heap of things. I'm currently speaking to you in Italy. Now, Italy, if I re- reverse time to March, Italy was the country that everyone was looking at because that's where COVID-19 was blowing up. How are things with you right now? Are you, are you okay? How far were you from the sort of epicenter of it in in Italy? Um, for, well, first of all, I'm okay. Um, the, my near circle of friends here are, are all okay. Um, there's a couple of, couple of people that um, contracted the virus and um, went through a, a pretty hard time but um, um, nobody is seriously ill and everybody has recovered uh, those two people have recovered um, I am about 30 minutes drive maybe 25 minutes drive from one of the epicenters um, basically where it started was no more than 45 minutes drive from where I am so I'm in the, the northern part of Italy about an hour and 20 minutes south of Milan um, uh, Lodi uh, is the name of the area where the first, um, they trace it back to the first uh, contaminated person that entered in, I think he was in, he was coming home from a business trip in, in uh, China. 
And um, yeah, so I was pretty much in the middle of it. But then again, I wasn't because uh, I'm on the countryside. I live in a small village or uh, just outside a small village. Um, and there's about, you know, um, 25, 30 minutes into to the metropolis city, but it's a world apart. And um, basically my wife and I and my, my dog uh, anchored down here on the on this little uh, Italian farm that I bought, and, and we basically stayed here and um, and lived uh, more or less self-sustained for about three months. Um, wow! Yeah, but it's a, um, it's a good time to be in the countryside yeah, right now, for sure. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. I mean, we can see how many people are are venturing out here now. I think after after been locked down in the in the city for so long, um, everybody's. Uh, is looking for an escape uh, now and, and for the future. And I think a lot of people re reevaluated how they live their life and, and what was important and locked into, uh, you know, a 900 square foot box in three months. I think, uh, I think you get to understand that there's a, a natural connection that's uh, seriously missing and it's starting to drive you mental and, <laughs> and you want to get the yeah. hell out of there and you want to prepare for, um, the future, whatever that might hold. So hopefully not Absolutely. another round of this, but let's see. I hope not, but it's not looking promising right no, now. No, it's not. It's not. Um, in the region where I am right now, it's it's good. Uh, there's very little contamination, new contaminations. Um, uh, the daily numbers are uh, many times in my region has been zero, uh, and it's been that for a while. Um, I think there's only a handful of people in the ICU at this time. So, so I feel a hell of a lot more safe, uh, traveling around here than I would do in, in most other places in Europe. So. And are you starting to work again? Like I'm out and about? Cause you're, you, yeah. your, your day, your, your day job is as a photographer. Is a, a yeah, photographer primarily, yeah, a director, photographer, and, um, I write quite a bit too. Which I luckily can do from uh, from my hammock or from my house <laughs> at least. So, <laughs> absolutely. Now, just I want to dig into your history a little bit because when I came to know you, I knew you initially through uh, your Instagram, which is Urban Outdoorsman. Oh, have I got that right? Uh, the Urban Huntsman. Urban Huntsman. Urban, Urban Huntsman. Yeah. And that's, which which is a showcase of the stuff that you do out and about in the great outdoors and your and your photography and some of your stories, uh, and then um, your contributions from Modern Huntsman. So I, you know, I got to know a little bit about your your hunt, hunting and fishing and m making use of resources off the land. But I also know that you have uh, a background in photography and high end fashion. So. But we know in the brief time that we've had to have a conversation over a beer, I never really had a chance to dig into this. So tell me about your backstory. How did you get to where you are right now in the in the foothills of of Italy? What was what was a, a young uh, what was the young version of you like? Um, well, first of all, I think about like question back at you will be how long time do we have to discuss this <laughs> <laughs> well Just my diary is clear but, uh, anyway, my I'll diary is clear to, now <laughs> I'll try to do i want to know about the young here. danny yeah so um i'm originally from denmark um i grew up on a farm um oh, so you're a viking i'm a fucking viking yeah 
<laughs> I know, I know some of your fellow countrymen, and all the Danes that I know are tremendous people. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. That's you haven't met all of them. I can tell you that. Uh, some that not, but <laughs> but yeah, we did tend to be quite friendly and uh, quite engaging. So, um, well, anyway, I'm back to it. Um, I grew up on a small, like um, uh, what we in Denmark call like a hobby farm. Uh, which basically means we didn't live off of the farm. My parents wanted uh, my sister and I to to grow up uh, with some some sort of connection to the land, um, connection to our food sources, uh, have that experience, understand the circle of life. Um, and of course, it was also for, for selfish reasons for the two of them. Um, they both love nature and um, so they bought this little farm when uh, when I was five. I moved from uh, the house we lived in into this farm in Denmark, uh, which was in a small outskirts of a small village, very much um, similar to kind of the situation where I'm living right now. Um, so that was my upbringing when uh when i was i believe i was 14 um so in the 80s uh we moved from the farm um and that um basically well i must have been older i must have been 15 15 16 um and that move was not a happy one for me um i was very much in um it was very much a source of of everything for me. Um, that being a source of um, of, of time spent alone uh, in nature. We were pretty close. We had a piece of, of forest uh, where I would spend a lot of time. There was a, a creek running through there. I spent many days down there fishing by myself. Um, we had enough land for for me to hunt. So um, sounds like heaven. Hunting. It was heaven. It was heaven. Yeah. It sounds very, very similar to uh, how I grew up for, for most of my years, although we never yeah. actually had uh, – well, actually, when I was very young, like five or six, we did have like 14, 15 acres, so it could yeah. have been, yeah. in inverted commas, kind of a hobby farm, although we never treated it as that. Yeah. Um, but from, from from most of my life up until going to university, all those things that you described is exactly what I had access to because we had a house in the middle of nowhere – and we oh, knew the farmers, perfect. so yeah, the, the, I'd fish in the river and, and build yeah. dams in the stream and exactly. hunt rabbits out the me. back door. That so I can I can picture this vividly. <laughs> that was me too. So you know, you know kind of what that does to a person, and I think oh um, yes, I many people have asked me where where did the hunting start from, and it started from being in nature. There was a I, I never had like a role model, and never uh, and hunting wise. Uh, um, I never had anybody that took me by the hand and, and took me into nature. It was something that I came to by myself and for um, for the lack of, of other people around, I started seeking it out myself. And, and um, my my dad had a really good friend who was, uh, who was a hunter, but he stopped hunting for a long time um, because he had an incident that was... Uh, emotionally very challenging for him um with uh with a hare that got um that got shot on a, on a hunt and i don't know if you ever heard of, i've 
unfortunately heard it before, but if a hair is not dead, it can sound pretty dramatic. Yeah, um, yeah, it's pretty harrowing. Yeah, yeah, it 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 sounds very much like a baby crying, actually. So it does, it's, a, yeah. it's not a very pleasant experience, and that um, that deeply affected him, and he stopped hunting. So. Uh, although he told me a lot of stories, a lot of hunting stories that, of course, inspired me, um, uh, he was not one to take me out hunting. Um, so the wonderful parents that I have, um, my mom decided when I was coming of age and I could actually take the hunting license, which means in, in Denmark you can start hunting when you're 16 and you can start taking the license when you're 15. Um so with nobody else around, my mom decided to to take the hunting license with me um, to kind of be sure that I, I she knew how much it, it would mean to me. But uh, she also knew that there was a good chance, I guess, based on my school history, there was a very good chance that half of the time I have the lessons, I will probably be out fishing or doing something else <laughs> instead of being at the classes. <laughs> so, um, so, yes. She was quite aware that it was a good idea to support me in this one on, on many levels. So um, I started hunting and and hunted uh, for a long time in, in Denmark. Um, typical day-to-day small hunts uh, in groups uh, with, uh, with some friend. I had a cousin that had a... Um, that had a boyfriend that uh, basically became my my mentor over anybody else, and he would take me out hunting and fishing. And he had this uh, red little sports car that his uh, <laughs> that is two meters uh, could barely squeeze into, and it looked completely fucking ridiculous. But uh, <laughs> anyway, anyway, it was the vehicle. Uh, I, how we managed to get the this, uh, fishing rods the and the guns vehicle. into that little sports car? It was like a Fiat sports car. I don't, don't remember what it's called, but uh, anyway, it was uh, way too small for for the kind of trips that we were doing. So uh, that was basically my introduction to to hunting, and that's how my many years in Denmark went. Um, but back to the farm, when we moved from the farm, it 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 dramatically uprooted my reality. It uprooted uh, my identity in many ways because I would I would very much spend the time out in nature, the majority of the time when I weren't in in school and and a lot of the time when I ought to be in school, I would still be out in nature. I would sit, I look out the window and daydream myself out to the creeks and to the rivers or to the <laughs> down to the to the lake where I would be fishing instead of listening to this uh, uh, very annoying German teacher that I had. So. Um, <laughs> It's easy to be distracted by these things when you should be learning. It's only later in life as you get a little bit older that sometimes you wish you'd paid a little bit more attention in school and university and learned a little bit more. But, you know, (laughs) I I think there is definitely something to be said for the the school of the great outdoors. And a lot of people miss that in their, you know, as they're growing up now because we do live in in urban centers increasingly. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. I think it it obviously it, um, it formed me in many ways to grow up on that farm. It formed me to have the close connection to life and death. Um, we had uh, we had cows, we had goats, we had uh, chickens, we had uh, ducks and geese and pigeons, and occasionally we caught a chicken and uh, the head went rolling and we cleaned it and then we ate it. You know, so we. 
from a very early age, I have pictures when I'm sitting five years old and have uh, have my arm into a chicken and in the middle of of pouring out the the innards of the chicken and cleaning it uh, for dinner later on. So um, I think when you're talking about, as you mentioned before, about urbanization and people gravitating towards the cities. Um, we lose that. We lose the understanding of it. We lose the understanding of life and death, and we lose the connection to nature. And, and when we do that, we also um, we lose the respect for it. We are no longer advocates for uh, conservation. We're not advocates for uh, the environment, um, animal welfare. So it's. Um, I think that was the, the kind of the springboard to the development that I went through um, and that brought me where I am today. But before I got here, I, I went to business school in, in Copenhagen and uh, worked in advertising agencies here in you know, in Denmark um, for a couple of years. And then I got accepted into Miami advertising school and um Wow, that's quite a departure from Denmark. Yeah, that's quite a departure. In between, I had I had a couple of years um, outside of the country. I went to um, first. I went to France and lived up in like a ski resort, and um, and I've been doing a lot of uh, different martial arts uh, for for years. And by the time I got there, I think I was nineteen. Yeah, I think I was nineteen and twenty, and um, and you know those. I think you've been to some of those ski resorts probably in Europe, I could imagine, but... Um, I haven't. Do you know, no. I, I've, been, I've been by a couple of ski resorts in, in Norway when I was um, filming and hunting there, but uh-huh. I, um, I can't ski or snowboard. It's oh, not something shit. I've ever done, so I've never had a reason to go to. <laughs> and I need to rectify this because it looks so much fun. I, I mean, I don't know whether I'd really be into you know downhill skiing, but so many of my European friends cross-country ski because they're doing it for... Some other person, like no, normally the guys that I know are using it because they're hunting capercaillie in the snow. Right, and that I, I could see that incentive, like that would be the mm-hmm. thing that would would drive me. And I got a very good friend in Norway, Lisa, and she she's always out skiing, cross country skiing during yeah. during the winter months. So yeah. I mean, I, this is a side note to these ski resorts, but yeah. I need to learn. So I, it's it's on my bucket list. Yeah, now it's it's tremendous. I mean, I don't know. Um, to be honest with you, I haven't done it much for for five to six years, but I I miss it a lot. I miss uh, I miss going crazy once in a while. I miss uh, I miss <laughs> getting a serious adrenaline rush. I I don't I I don't know. It's been a depleted from my life recently, so um, I feel a little <laughs> I imagine, bit lost. And I'm, <laughs> I might be totally wrong with this, but from the little that I do know you. I imagine that the young Danny was quite a wild character. Would would that be fair? Yeah, that would probably be fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would probably be fair. I'm imagining 20-year-old you, and I know what you look like now because you're probably about 10 or 15 years older than I would have pegged your age. <laughs> um and I imagine a 20-year-old Danny probably had a lot of fun in the ski resorts in France. Yes, a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's an interesting environment when you get dumped in there and, uh, and you kind of have to make your way. And I, I found a job at, uh, at the, 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 the area was called, it's called Val Torrance in, in France, which is uh, part of the, like a, a very major ski resort that has three valleys. Um, and it's kind of the, the place to be for 
for young people um, at that time, at least. And, um, and I did not, uh, I came there to snowboard. I really wanted to snowboard more than anything else. Um, so my objective was to find a job at night uh, so I could snowboard during the day. And uh, I bumped into this um, British dude that was a former uh, special force guy and uh terry um and he was in charge of of security at this uh prestigious nightclub there and uh and uh yeah that led to, that led to me being um being a, a bouncer at this nightclub for <laughs> for two seasons and i was snowboard during the day and uh just live the dream and then have something to eat go to work and repeat the day after so so what 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 was it that pulled so, you out of this uh, this cycle of of snowboarding and working in in nightclubs and just generally having fun? Well, I think yeah, it was just a um, you know you grew the, out ski, of the ski resources uh, is a seasonal thing, and um, so after the first season, I went to Crete in Greece, and uh, the year before, I was there on vacation and. Um, started diving, took a diving course, and um, I really wanted to continue the diving. I thought there was a, I found a tremendous uh, excitement and, and peace underneath the water where, where you don't hear anything else. Everything else disappears, kind of like what it does sometimes with, with some of the intense hunts that you can be out on or, or intense in the sense of just solitude and silence. Um, Diving's incredible. Yeah, it's diving, like, I mean, you just... I, I can yeah, you know. I compare it to not that I would I know apart from the fact I've been in planes and helicopters but mm-hmm. I think it's the closest that we can be to sort of independently flying because I always think of it as yeah. flying underwater. Yeah. yeah. It was um I ended up working uh advancing in the in the educational system on the paddy and uh became a uh, became a dive master and at the end of the second season there um, I felt a hell of a lot more comfortable underwater than I did above. So it was really an interesting kind of reflection now that I look back on it and, and the time after that came after. So uh, a tremendous experience. And that's where I started uh, spear fishing. also, which uh, I've been a part of, of some of my adventures since. Um, but the time in... Um, the time in Greece uh, propelled me back to Denmark, and uh, and I worked there for a while, and so so that was that was it. Uh, in between um, a trip to to Miami and worked there for a couple of about a year and a half. Um, so I've been back like? and forth a little bit. What was Miami like for you? <laughs> well, I was there. I was there twice. Um, the first time in '98 and '99. Uh, which is quite a few years back, and that was a very good time in Miami. Um, it was a lot of fun for me. Um, I, I worked a, a daytime job that uh, paid uh, pretty well. I, um, I started, um, I continued the kickboxing in uh, South Florida, kickboxing in on Miami Beach. So it was it was a good life back uh, back then for those couple of years. I, I enjoyed it at that time. Um, but when I returned, but a long way from long way from the great outdoors, though. A long way from the great outdoors, and then again, it wasn't. Um, 
luckily, I, you know, I started getting immersed into the, the fashion industry at that time. And um, uh, luckily, I met a photographer who, um, who is a Miami native, but he's also an avid outdoorsman. Um, so you drive 30 minutes from South Beach and you're in the Everglades. So we would take uh, we would take trips into the Everglades, uh, hunting and fishing, and and uh, luckily his dad had a, a very nice deep sea fishing boat. So we would go out deep sea fishing, and we would go out on a on a smaller boat and go out to the to the sandbars and uh, go swimming around, spear fishing, go diving for lobster. Um, so I still had it. I had I had the nature, I had the nature experiences there enough for me to feel that it was suffice for that period of time at least. So, so high end fashion photographer by day, and uh, by by night and weekends you were you were away, sort of replicating the life you had lived back in Europe. Kind of, kind of, yeah. I I weren't then. I weren't a photographer back then. Um, oh, so you hadn't actually started photography? No, then. I actually hadn't started uh. photography then. Uh, when I when I returned to Miami for the second time was in um, in in two thousand when I went to Miami Advertising School to take a master program, what they call a boot a boot camp, um, which is. Um, Especially a very short period of time, um, and entire education cramped into uh, six months. Uh, so we went to I went to school every single day, um, but I also took a, a job as a bouncer again at a nightclub just to have some extra cash and to you know get to get to mingle a little bit and get introduced to some of the uh, the attributes that Miami can offer. So um, <laughs> so. So those six months went by, and uh, with school every day. And uh, as soon as I was done, I couldn't wait to get the hell out of Miami because the the scene had changed a lot. Back to your question, the scene from two thousand, oh, from from ninety eight and ninety nine to to two thousand two thousand one, when I finished there, uh, had changed dramatically. Um, a lot of my old friends started moving out. There was. Um, there was a lot of crime that moved into South Beach at the time, um, and it was all due to the change, or not all, but primarily due to the change of, of music at the time. Um, that was right around the time when the the uh, house and electronic music was uh, was going out and was uh, being replaced by hip hop. So we had on South Beach. There was um, there was uh, you know, unfortunately they brought some of the um, the negative sides to to the hip hop culture into Miami Beach, and you don't have to move far out from from Miami Beach before there's some areas you don't want to go into. Um, and those um, many of those people started moving into Miami Beach during certain nights when. When the clubs were playing uh, hip hop, and the, the larger artists were starting to to give concerts there, um, so the whole scene changed. The mood changed. The uh, the energy of the beach changed a lot. So, so when I was done with advertising school in two thousand one, um, I was ready to get out. So, packed the car and drove up to New York. Okay. And that's when that's when life really started. 
I was going to say, think. New York's an even greater departure because I, I mean, I've actually never been. I've plenty of friends who have been. I have a very good friend who who spent a bit of time there, and uh, even for her, who's lived in cities her whole life, she's like New York was just it was just too much. Every it just felt claustrophobic and kind of dirty all the time, and everyone was like busy and hustling and. And I'm 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 only um, conveying what I've been told because I, I can't make any comment myself. Although I I imagine from what I've seen of it that because of the kind of person I am and, and where I live, which is in the middle of nowhere, it's not a place I'd want to spend a huge amount of time. So I mean, a draw to New York just does not seem like a move from uh, a man who was you know clearly ingrained in in the countryside and the, and outdoors pursuits. At Baton. At the time, that was not really a consideration for me. I think um, it was all, when you finish advertising school, uh, uh, you'll have in the if you want to stay in the U.S., you'll have uh, certain markets that you can go to that is um, most likely going to get propel you in your career and where you're going to learn the the most and get the best jobs. Um, basically, it's it's New York number one. Uh, San Francisco is a major creative hub. Um, Today, LA is is very high on that scale. Also, Chicago has um, had a lot of advertising at that time. So those were the primary markets that you would that you would go to. And and for me, it was New York. Um, uh, there was no doubt that it was going to be New York. Actually, I, I very much consider San Francisco also. But um, since my my family was at that time and still is uh, based in Denmark. Um, for me to move all the way over to the West Coast would mean that I would move even further away from my family and the yeah uh, yeah another five hours if you want to get home yeah and you know you know the outlook to to being further away and and those uh, roadblocks uh, for for spending quality time with them would uh, most likely uh, uh, yeah mean that that I wouldn't see them as often and 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 New York just seems like the the right solution to me. I've been up to New York a few times before, and of course was very intrigued with the city. And and going back to what you said before, that the city is in, incredible. Um, I lived both in the city, and and I spent the majority of those um, seventeen, eighteen years in New York. I spent them in Brooklyn. Um, wow, you were there for seventeen, eighteen years. Yeah, yeah, it was. Wow, yeah. I had no idea it was so long. So, if I want to yeah, go yeah. and experience New York, I need to go with you. Uh, yeah, uh, depending on what you want to experience, I can <laughs> I can guide you pretty well. <laughs> if you want to go outdoors, I know exactly where to go. If uh, yeah, so, well, maybe we shouldn't dive further into this. This <laughs> this is a discussion off air. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, you were all, you obviously eventually felt, I mean, you were there a long time. You obviously felt comfortable there. Yeah, I felt very comfortable. Um, I was very lucky. When, when I got to New York, um, I didn't have a job right out of, of school. So I, I, of course, had to make a living somehow. And um, there's, um, I don't know if you have it in the, in the UK, but um, uh, there's a guide in the U.S. Um, this was before the internet really took over, uh, but there was a guide in the U.S. called the Segaf Guide, and um, it basically you can get them from the different cities, and it lists all the best places to go, the best restaurants, best lounges, and and so forth. Um, so I grabbed that, yeah, I bought that guide, and I went down the list and said, okay, I need to to work in a place um, to make some money to start out with, but I also want to get 
connected to New York City. So um, I looked at the at the guide and I went and interviewed um, uh, with number one um, at the time called Asia de Cuba, and uh, uh, that was a restaurant, uh, Asian restaurant lounge, uh, a, a wildly popular. Um, but I didn't like the uh, I didn't like the atmosphere. I didn't like the vibe. I didn't like the the people much that I uh, interacted with during uh, during that um, interview. Um, so I went down the list, and number three sounded really intriguing. There was a restaurant on the Lower East Side, Shea uh, Sada. It was kind of like a hidden gem um, and kind of a, a bit of a celebrity hangout spot uh, with the basement where people could kind of hide out and there was performances going on. There was cabaret. And so it sounded like the right place for me. It sounded interesting, fun. It sounded multifaceted, not just a, you know, just a past place where people come in to be seen and and drink their brains out or whatever they did. And um, um, so I ended up um, interviewing at this restaurant and um, and got a, got a job as a, as a doorman there. And, um, and that was my uh, introduction into photography because the owner was a prominent fashion photographer. So um, uh, I started um, helping him and assisting him for so some time for for the different jobs and that's kind of how i it developed into photography rather than uh, than advertising wow so you that that was your route into picking up a camera and now uh photography is what i originally knew you for yeah yeah that's incredible yeah. so how how so how many years were you doing photography in new york was that all of your time there no it wasn't all of my time um I I helped and I assisted this uh, this photographer. His name is Michael James O'Brien. If you guys wanna, anybody wants to look him up, um, a brilliant uh, photographer, educated at uh, Yale University, and also taught photography at Yale for many years. Uh, an incredibly inspiring person and and um, uh, an intellectual and. In many ways, uh, he was also the one that set up the different cabarets. He had uh, he had different shows uh, that he put up in New York. He had a poetry club in New York. Uh, so uh, an incredible person that became a huge source of inspiration for me in many ways. Um, not the outdoors, though. So um, I got introduced to one of his friends who uh, was the PR director for an Italian company, uh, coffee company, Ely Cafe, and um, and that led to a job opportunity for for an art show that they were sponsoring in New York called the Armory Show, and uh, at the time the Armory Show was the largest contemporary art show in in um, the United States, and it was the it was the one that produced the uh, highest sales, so quite prestigious and and top uh, contemporary artists were uh, deeply engaged in and all of its galleries, etc. So uh, I did a job there for them and worked with them on the Armory show for, um, I think it was about three months, um, all in all with pre-production and then the show itself and some of the post-production after. And that led into to basically opening a uh, production company focusing primarily on uh, epicurean and and art-related events in in New York City. 
Wow. Yeah. So the that's first six incredible. years was that. Um, what a story. Yeah, yeah. So I, but that's why I said, how, how long time do we actually have? Because, uh, <laughs> as long as you want. I'm fascinated. I'm completely gripped by this because it's just, it's so far removed from the Danny that I know. That I knew that you were involved in you know, the fashion photography and you did, uh, you, I didn't know it was quite that long that you lived in the States. Um, but I, you know, see you in camo and, and walking and fishing and cooking meat outside. And so this part of your world, which is a massive part of your life, I just didn't really know anything about. And I, I wonder in those kind of, and this is maybe unfair to what my perception of the kind of people who move in that world, because it's it's not a world that I really know. But did you find that uh, when you were talking about your interest and, and passions outside the photography and the world that you were moving in there, when you talked about fishing or you know the, the the desire to fish or or hunt, that it was an uncomfortable discussion, or did you just avoid having them? How did that interaction go? I never avoided having those conversations, and I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that many hunters they actually do, and certainly something that I'm seeing uh, consistently. Um, I always, I, I never necessarily uh, brought it up on the forefront. Uh, it was not something like uh, you go into a studio and say, uh, "Hey guys, I'm, hey, I'm the photographer, <laughs> and I, I hunt uh, uh, and every single day. I go outside. Yeah. And I like to cook. Do you kill things. your food? <laughs> yeah. So it, it kind of, you know, the conversations will uh, will open up organically yeah. over during lunch or something like that uh, where you typically get to know the people that you're working with if you don't already know them and and that was absolutely there's never been a conversation that i avoided on the contrary i kind of always um pushed it forward um when i felt they was right um and i think that's that's another thing that that many of us um, can get better at um, just understanding the situation and the people that you're around and when the conversations um, should be brought up but when we can actually engage um, the worst thing that I see right now is is you know so many hunters and uh, have been scared away by the anti-hunters and they are so afraid to have any conversations or engage with anybody that they don't know and actually talk about this and I think there's a there's a lot of hunters that are not um, necessarily equipped with the vocabulary or the thoughts uh, have not uh, kind of structured in their head for them to talk about what it really is uh, or what it means to them. Um, because we all we all know it's about going outside with a gun and uh, sometimes there's dead animals that ends up as a result of that. Uh, um, that's the picture that everybody has. But uh, when you start talking intimately and emotionally about the experiences and what that means to you and how you uh, your perspective on the world in general, how your perspective on life is, how your perspective on the food sources that we have and how your perspective on, on um, uh, uh, your fellow humans have, have been formed and shaped by this connection that you have to nature and everything that's within it. Um, so, so for me, it was always an, a, a joyful kind of uh, venture into the wilderness, if you will, uh, yeah. during these uh, during these lunch times and during these conversations. So I never I never shied away from it, and I never had um, I never had a bad or, or unpleasant experience where 
where um, where I felt that I wasn't heard or the other person really uh, greatly disliked me because I I go out and I provide my own food and I find uh, uh, peace and beauty in this uh, this lifestyle, this connection that I have. Mm. Uh, but you, con- you were definitely... Uh, what what you enjoyed was definitely not common in the company that you were keeping. Would that be fair? Yeah, it would be fair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, primarily um, uh, the fashion industry. Uh, many of the people in the fashion industry, probably uh, the majority of the people in the fashion industry, are are very passionate about it. You know, the majority of them are creatives. They're they're deeply in love with what they do. It's a work of passion and. Um, and as much as hunting is is a passion, uh, when when you're so engaged in a work of passion, that's fashion. It it um, it will, for in most cases, draw you away from the the natural world. Although now, um, obviously, there's a, there's enormous discussions about fashion and fashion's role in. Uh, um, ecology, the environment, uh, pollution, uh, natural resources, etc. So, um, but that said, uh, there was a lot of people that um, that I know uh, now or that I've known throughout my career and in fashion that sought the same things. Um, going back to your question about being in New York City for that long, there's a tremendous energy in New York City, and I. The place that I I anchored down and and called home for the majority of the time in in New York was in Brooklyn in Williamsburg and before Williamsburg became a you know a hipster central um, it was primarily an old uh, old Italian neighborhood it was uh, the first and second generation Italian immigrants that lived in that area so. As soon as I got in there, I got this strong sense and feel of, of family and community and something that I really longed for a lot, uh, something that I found in a way um, maybe a similar kind of feeling or, or emotional attachment to to nature I've, I found in that community there. Um, and did, so, did that come from the, the influence of the, the Italian culture in that area? Yes, absolutely. I mean, well, there was a there was several of the of the inhabitants in my uh, in my neighbor little neighborhood within the two or three blocks that only spoke Italian. Every single day, when you open up the windows, you would hear them talk Italian, speak Italian outside, and um, and that greatly influenced my uh, and and piqued my curiosity and my need and wanting to to go and explore and spend more time in Italy. Um, yeah, uh, but that that really um, that neighborhood saved me in many ways, and I think that was the reason why I was able to stay in New York for that long time. But New York is not the forest. New York, uh, well, let me back up. That's not right. New York City is not the forest. New York City is not uh, the wilderness. But New York City is a lot of other things. You have parks around the city. You have coastline that has incredible fishing. I would go fishing on the, the south point of, of Manhattan down at Battery Park and, and fish for striped bass when they were pulling up into the Hudson River. Uh, you had the coast out on, on uh, Rocky Beach uh, that was, you know, a half an hour drive or 35 minutes drive from my apartment in Brooklyn. And I would be out on the coast and standing in, in water, you know, chest deep and fishing for bluefish or fishing for stripers or fishing for sharks or so um, it was kind of my 
wanting and need to get out of the city and have those or uh, rediscover or, um, those natural connections and discover them in in the vicinity of New York City that started um, pulling me further and further out of the city. Um, and, um, you know, a six, six years into it, uh, I bought a house in, in upstate New York, which is, um, in, in Woodstock, uh, like the Woodstock festival. The festival. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, Bethel is the place where the, where the actual concert, uh, concert took place. Uh, what it's named after Woodstock, where the, the, primarily driving force behind um, the festival lived and and where the um, the music center was etc so um, I bought a house up there which sits in 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 the middle of a state park under um, I think I believe it's a hundred and twenty thousand square miles of state park uh, the Catskill mountains and and it's a it's a wild place. It's full of rivers, uh, big uh, water reservoirs that feeds New York City with, uh, with drinking water, uh, full of whitetails, full of black bears, grouse um, on the outskirts. And how far is this from the center of the city? From the center of the city to the southern part of the Catskills is probably an hour and 45 minutes. It's not really that far. and It's, it's not far it's, at all. It's, it's like the perception. It's funny how we, we build these perceptions, and we build these perceptions through mainly what we see on TV. Mm-hmm. And I had no, until uh, a year ago, so I'd never been to LA before. Uh-huh. And I had this perception of LA, which was just you know, co- concrete jungle of a city. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong, it is a freaking huge city. I think in greater LA, there's something crazy like 13 million people. However, it's a really sprawling city. And in terms of like the high towering buildings, it's a tiny little core like in the center of it. And almost anywhere there, you can see the mountains. And within an hour, depending on the traffic, you can, you can be out and you're in the mountains where there's bighorn sheep and mountain lions. And you go a little bit further up the coast and you're getting into your national forests and out to the um, Joshua Tree Na- um, National Park. And so you can, if you have a will to experience those places, even if you do live within those very big urban centers, they are there to access. And in the same way as like Edinburgh, one of our biggest cities in Scotland, uh, I lived there for a couple of years when I worked in finance. Within 30 minutes of leaving Edinburgh, you're in as remote a countryside as you pretty much get. Okay, maybe West Coast would be, but Glasgow is an even better example, actually, because Glasgow's West Coast, I think it's actually a bigger city. I think there's more people who live there. Within an hour of leaving Glasgow, you're up the West Coast Trail. I think within two hours, you can be in Glencoe. The, the, Glencoe and uh, you know Ben Nevis, our highest mountain, is there. So you can access these places if you have a will. I think that one of the I think one of the problems with the way that modern society has structured itself is it, we've become a society of convenience. And so there becomes this sort of uh, entrenched view that you never need to leave. Yeah, okay, you'll get on a plane and you'll go to a place on holiday. But in terms of experiencing the country that's beneath your feet and around you, we don't do that enough. And, and part of it is because our lives are so freaking busy. I think mean, COVID-19 and actually 
forcing people to stay at home and see what is actually around you maybe will make people appreciate that a little more. Although, having said that, I don't know what it's been like uh, where you are, but one of the things that's disappointed me most is in the early months of uh, of lockdown around the world, there was lots of articles about how people were going to appreciate nature more because they'd been forced to stay in their houses. And we were seeing these stories, some of which were true and some of them were actually fabrication of nature reclaiming the land that people are no longer in. The first thing that happened in the UK when lockdown got lifted, uh, it got lifted in, in um, England first, is people flocked to these wild areas of nature, particularly the beaches. And when they left at the end of the first day of uh, lockdown lifting, they left shit and litter all over those beaches. And I just thought to myself, you know, for all of the crying about nature and this is our chance to you know, almost start afresh because of this long protracted period where we've been in our houses. And then you see the actions of people and actions speak louder than words. And they were all lying through their teeth. All Every single one of those people who went and left shit behind, they don't care. And I think, that, I, and I think that unfortunately, we see these things and then we we project. And obviously, this is not everybody, but it's still a shitload of people because there was a shitload of mess left, mm-hmm. and it's too many people for all the people who are trying to do the right thing, that are trying to recycle, who are putting uh, something back into the environment. You have another person like one of these people who left their their litter on the beaches. Yeah. And it's really sad that we still live in a society that can't value, and especially after that long period mm-hmm. where you think, I just want to get out. I want to be free. Mm-hmm. And they abused that. You know, They abused what is actually a privilege, and we should have realized that it is a privilege to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I totally agree. We've seen the same thing here. Um, I think growing up in in Denmark, I have a perception of what's right and wrong when it comes to the environment. Uh, I do think in many ways, it's, uh, Denmark has been a role model for many other countries for some of the environmental in- initiatives that they have taken. And when you drive around in Denmark, uh, the place is clean. I mean, you don't see litter. People just don't throw litter away. You don't throw it out the window. Of course, every now and then there's a fucking retard that does it, but uh you know, it's not um, it's not common. But the further south you go in Europe, the more common it becomes. And I don't understand why. But uh, the only the only reasonable explanation I have is it's a lack of education, and that coming from the institutions, uh, uh, both of course the, the official government institutions and the institutions that shapes us, us as our parents. You know. Um, how is it that people are not brought up to understand that this is wrong? How is it that adults now, in 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 the case of of my area, where so I have a river, a really beautiful river that runs through the valley where I live, and uh, that river is uh, is very popular during the summertime. People come here to go swimming, and there's beautiful swimming holes all over. Um, and during some of the most popular months in in July. Uh, there were so many people that many of the, the small uh, towns had to hire additional staff to come in and clean after these people that left everything that they brought, uh, all the trash, uh, old uh, tents that collapsed, uh, 
all kinds of shit there, and and it 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 blows my mind and it uh, aggravates me to to see how people are disrespected and and think that they they don't take any responsibility for themselves or for the environment and nature that they are part of. Um, but I do seriously believe it goes back to education, and which is something that I, I quite frequently thought about when while living in the states, because you see it around specifically around the uh, metropolis cities. Uh, you know, in this in the cities is is are dirty in the states. Uh, there's very few that I visited where I've actually thought that this so if this was a nice place where trash didn't just fucking. Uh, take up all the the small corners of every single little street or alleyway. Uh, so, so it's a sad development. I used to think now that that during this period we had time to reflect, and when we have that longing to get out, uh, we should we should um, take care of it on a in a different way. But, yeah, um, you would hope so. Yeah. So, just going back to uh, going back back to New York, what what eventually took you away from there and back to well i don't know where did you go after that i know that you're in italy now but i don't know if there was anything in between uh, well uh no there was actually nothing in between this time um i went directly to italy after um after living in new york for that long um i i found my solitude i found my silence i found my connections up in the catskills um I had two different houses up there, and I, I did a tremendous amount of of hunting, and specifically bow hunting. Um, oh wow! for for white tails and and black. Were, were you just doing that by yourself on public land? Yeah, that was by myself on public land. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's I, I, It's something I still haven't had the well. I've had the opportunity, but not the time to do mm-hmm. yet is go and hunt some of the public lands in, in the states because you know even as a even as a as a foreigner as someone who's not actually from there a resident you can do that if you buy an, an over the counter yeah if you buy a um, license yeah, yeah license so yeah. I, and it's something i would love to do i think the, probably the easiest thing for me to do is um, get one of the grouse licenses in, in montana which we talked about doing last year but i never got around to doing so yeah what a what an amazing experience to be to do that just off your own but did you have anybody to kind of show you the ways and understand the species which are very far well i suppose deer have similar habits to to um european deer but mm-hmm. they have a lot of species which we don't really have anything yeah, yeah. Know, that close to. yeah i did um so the real estate agent that sold me my first house um i became very fond of and um and she's a she's a leo like everybody else in my close circle around all my all my <laughs> families are leo so uh, even though I don't know how much I believe in astrology, it's, uh, there's, there's certain a pa- certainly a pattern there that I cannot uh, deny. So um, she became very much like a family to family member to me, and um, and uh, she was uh, how old was she at the time? Fifty in her early fifties, I think fifty two or something like that. Um, but um, Shortly after I moved out there, she got a new boyfriend, and this new boyfriend was a, a hunter, and he had a, a, a piece of land, and, and um, I got introduced to him, and he was basically the one that, that took me under uh, his wing and introduced me um, to hunting up there, introduced me to bow hunting, and, um, and since then, uh, I primarily bow hunt when I can. 
Um, unfortunately, maybe we can circle back to that, but here in Italy, it's uh, it's pretty much impossible to bow hunt anywhere. It's not legal. Um, so um, the majority of the time I spent bow hunting up in the Catskill Mountains, and it's a wild place. I mean, the it's a uh, it's as I mentioned before, it, it's big. It's uh, really big. So you can venture into the western part of the Catskills, and and you with you will not you will not see people for a couple of days if you if you take a backpack and walk into the forest. Uh, you know, it's a, there's not a lot of people up there. Um, that said, there is now because um, a lot of people have have since then started venturing up. Um, a lot of creative people, as we talked about before, a lot of people within my industry are now seeking this kind of uh, balance in their life, uh, like I did when I first started uh, uh, looking out of the city and trying to find a place that I could go to and, and uh, kind of be myself and uh, enjoy some of the, the quiet time and emerge into nature and and reap all the benefits of, of that time in nature. So. When, when you moved over to... Uh, to Italy, did you just mm-hmm. maintain the similar kind of work that you were doing? At what point did you sort of dip your toe into writing in the outdoors, countryside pursuits type publications and taking those, that kind of imagery as well? Mm-hmm. So I had to. Um, that actually happened before I bought the uh, the house up in the Catskills. So I. Oh. Um, I, I I was thinking, I was contemplating how I could find a way to, um, not that I needed, but uh, at least in, in a couple of different ways, justify getting out of the city and, and, um, and spending time there and not kind of just being caught up in that rat race mill in, in New York City, in the career mill in New York City. Um, so... I figured um, I would like to to engage um, more people in the conversations around hunting and specifically um, going into to the food sources that that hunting, for example, can provide, or hunting and fishing and foraging can provide us. Um, so it kind of sparked from from what you asked about before those those conversations within the fashion industry because. It seemed like everybody that I spoke to was very intrigued. A lot of the people that um, that I told my story to and that I explained uh, and took the time to explain um, what this means to me and why I live the way that I live, um, they were very intrigued. And many of them that had a negative um, kind of point of view on, on hunting uh, before talking to me, change their perspective. So I was like, you know what? If if I can, within five minutes, change the perspective of a non-hunter to, if not uh, accept it, but at least respect uh, my choice, um, what can I do or how can I do that on a larger scale? How can I influence more people to, to kind of understand that and take advocacy for... Um, animal welfare, for example, for for nature, for our environment. Um, so I contemplated that for a while, and and then I thought, you know what, the there we have ninety five percent of the world's population are carnivores. Um, if I speak about the one thing that we all do, which is eating, 
which is food. That's a common denominator for 100% of all people. 95% of them are carnivores. Uh, you can, you can, you know, my experience was five minutes or less with anybody, even vegetarians, I would gain respect for my point of view. I would gain respect for how I live. I would gain the respect for hunting viewed through uh, my philosophy and through my eyes. So um, I figured, let me figure, let me try and come up with a format, one where I show that nature is just outside your door, that everybody, even if you live in New York City, have access to it, that you can still immerse yourself into the wild and and into these experiences and gain not only the experiences themselves but a, a tremendous sense of of well-being and a tremendous sense of, of connection to something greater than yourself and greater than than the people around you or to the city or to your job um so i i figured i'll try to to start this project and i i uh <laughs> i contemplated the name for a while and um I figured the urban huntsman was was something that uh, had a pretty good tone to it. Uh, I thought it was a. I ran it by some of my advertising friends, and they said, uh, "Okay for it." So I figured, "What the fuck? Let's give it a go." <laughs> and um, so, so I did. And then I contacted a food magazine, uh, which okay. is called Copenhagen Food, uh, which were at the time the kind of premier food magazine in Scandinavia, uh, and. Um, I don't know how much you, you know about, um, about food in general, about the food industry, but, uh, but at the time we, Denmark had, uh, the world's best restaurant, which was Noma. And, yeah. I, I, I only know about that yeah. because my friend David CP pointed it out to me when I was in Denmark. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so there was a lot of focus and a lot of eyes were on Scandinavia and Denmark specifically, uh, towards um, a lot of eyes towards the food scene, and I figured that could be a good start. Even though that the, the magazine was in Danish, um, at least the Scandinavia and it was distributed out to Scandinavia, so Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. Uh, at least those people will be able to read my stories, and I figured that will be a good way to start. Um, so I reached out to the magazine and said, "This is my concept. This is my idea. I live in New York City. I'm a fashion photographer." Um, day-to-day immerse into this uh, rat race and into these uh, and shooting beautiful models during the daytime and and um, and then when the weekend comes around and when I have time for it I would place the camera with a with a gun or a bow and I or a fishing rod and I go out and and have these uh, reconnective experiences these grounding experiences out in nature and I cook my own food and so I figured there, there had to be a format where I could make this interesting, where I could uh, kind of be, uh, in a way, a teacher showing by doing uh, that this is possible. This is possible if you live in, in Copenhagen. You have the nature right outside the door. You can go uh, harvesting uh, um, different um, uh, seaweeds, for example, right outside your door when you're surrounded by water. If you're in New York City, you go to... You go to uh, Battery Park and you fish for striped bass or you go foraging in some of the parks that are right around. You can actually take a subway from Grand Central Station 
to the very end of the line and you're in a state park. I mean, it takes you 25 minutes. 20, 25 fucking minutes on a subway uh, with plenty of, inter- plenty of entertainment on the way there. And you're in a national uh, in a state park where you can go out and you can go hunt there. You can go fishing. You can go hiking. Um, you can go foraging. So I figured I got to figure out a way to, I got to find a way where I can inspire other people to take that step. And it it also goes back to my own challenges and my own frustrations at the beginning when I tried to seek, um, um, seek the outside of New York City. Uh, I found surprisingly few resources, surprisingly few uh, forums or clubs that talked about this that would that would go out or go hunting or go fishing or go hiking. There was no resources for this. There was nobody that talked about how to do it. So I was left on my own, and I basically, you know, I started out with taking a, a Google Maps and and figured out okay, where is the closest uh, 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 waterways north of New York City, and then I would take the car and drive out there and fish and and. Uh, but, there, but I had to do it myself. So there was no sense of community there uh, supported. There was nobody that would uh, that would uh, talk about doing uh, a group trips or nothing at all. There was no resources. Um, so I figured maybe if I can do these stories here and I can try to distribute them through through my own channels and and for now um, collaborate with this food magazine. One, uh, I would talk to non-hunters, which was essential for me. Because, um, of course, um, it, it's great to produce content and and um, tell stories to hunters. But uh, for me, my objective with what I do that's, that's outdoors related is to get out to as many people as possible and to as many non-hunters as possible to to provide a different point of view, to provide a more in-depth and emotional point of view on the on the connections that we have with nature and um, uh, try to have a nuance or create a nuanced uh, image and understanding of what it means to hunt, for example. Because I think, you know, the my, my greatest wish is that somehow us, uh, you, me, our, our wonderful colleagues at Modern Huntsman, that we can inspire enough non-hunters. And maybe there is a way. My dream is to create a sort of a Ten Commandments for, for hunters, give them some tools, simple tools, uh, for them to start a conversation with non-hunters. Find that common ground. Um, going back to what we talked about before, I, I hate seeing the hunters that are grouping together in one corner and then you have uh, the environmentalists in the other corner, whatever each group wants to call each other, because there are certainly a lot of different uh, nicknames for it. But we all have this planet. We all are part of, uh, we all have responsibility for the resources and we all uh, taking advantages of the resources that we have available to us in one way or the other. So let's find some common ground. Let's talk about it. Let's not shy away from conversation and let's let's do whatever we can to engage. And if I can somehow help uh, building bridges or breaking down those some of those barriers with showing 
showing some of these stories, some of these experiences that I have, putting words to it that um, now that you and I are having this conversation here, I, we're talking casually, but when I sit down and I write um, the way that I formulate myself and the words that comes out are very different than a casual conversation. And you know that as well as I do. Uh, yeah. You articulate yourself very differently. But what if we could help uh, equip or dress both hunters and non-hunters to understand what it means to be a hunter, what it means to immerse yourself into to nature and take a part of it uh, as we do, uh, take a part of the natural circle that happens uh, in life and in nature. Um, yeah. So that was basically my objective with the um, with the project. Uh, the food magazine loved the idea, and we we that was the um, that was the kickstart of of the project, the Urban Huntsman. Wow. It's, I think that to what you're saying there, one of the fundamental starting points, if you are already somebody who is immersed within the hunting community, is a little bit of self-reflection first. Because I think that without really trying to understand the the fabric of meaning behind why we actually are motivated to do what we do, whether that be casting a line for brown trout or hunting roe deer, it's very difficult to articulate that to somebody who doesn't understand it, who has never partaken in it. And although there's a food element of it, there is more to the uh, there is more to it than just sourcing food for the table it's an, it's incredibly important and it should be a core value of it but uh, it it has to be more than that it has to be more than food and it has to be more than just simply managing populations we we have lots of professionals in, in the country that i'm sitting at in, in scotland who are managing deer populations year round for um the the benefit for the habitat because too many deer can uh, negatively impact the habitat. And that has very little to do with anything other than it's a job. It's a, it's a, it's a management tool of which uh, hunting by professionals is part of it. And, but really trying to get to grips with the that sort of deep-seated nature of what hunting is to us as humans is something that we don't think about enough and you really need to to stop and pause in your own space and time to really reflect on your on your actions and why you're doing it to even begin to understand that for yourself and that's why when i have the conversations with hunters and they're getting frustrated because they there there is this feeling that we are unable to generally speaking uh, portray positively hunting and outdoors pursuits to to the masses. Yep, absolutely. But I totally understand why people don't get it because it's incredibly complicated and most of us don't even truly understand it ourselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I completely agree with with all your assessments there. Uh my time in the states um it's it's certainly formed and shaped me but I I also saw I try to reflect a lot on on the people around. So, the the gentleman, uh, my good friend Warren, 
that took me under his wing and um, and and showed me uh, how to hunt in in upstate New York. Um, you know, a retired state trooper, uh, one of the warmest, most loving people that you could ever imagine. But it's never shown by uh, communication. It's never words. Uh, it's by action itself, and specifically in in the states, but also in general. Um, the majority of the hunters are males. We are not being taught as little kids that it's okay to talk about our feelings, that we are not being taught that that we can have these kind of heart-to-heart conversations with the people around us. We should, uh, you know, it, it, the society teaches us that we should uh, be these strong men that no matter what uh, is thrown at us, uh, we can manage it. And we can certainly, we should not be crying. That's definitely a big no. <laughs> Hell not. Showing any kind definitely of Definitely not. Fuck no. Like yeah, fuck no. Not, <laughs> if not you're a crying. man, you can't cry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, you're, you're really, I mean, you've hit on something which is, as a as a for a for a man for a male, incredibly important because you're absolutely right. That is what society and, and particularly the culture that that I grew up in, and it sounds like the same from you and and the culture that you experience for the most part in the states. There is that, and it is it, it is um, a burying. There there is an encouragement for an a burying of emotions, which I think does a disservice for us to be able to communicate other things in life later on. Absolutely. I mean, but I'm I'm very I'm very happy and I'm very uh, excited that more girls and women are joining um, our our so-called brotherhood of hunters. Uh, maybe we need to find a different word for that. But um, but it, it it brings a different sensibility to the subject. Um, I do believe that uh, if I if I as a male and probably most people will say a, a kind of alpha male uh, can talk to to most uh, people around me in in very different uh, layers of society and have uh, generate an understanding and in most cases an acceptance of the way that I live and and why I hunt. We're in less than five minutes. I think any woman can do it in half that time or just by her sheer presence because they bring different values as we recognize them in society today. So I'm really excited to see that, uh, for example, that, uh, that modern huntsman gave an issue to, to the women. You know, it's, uh, it's tremendously uh, encouraging that we are now seeing a lot of these strong women taking uh, a, a huge responsibility on their shoulders and help to, to nuance uh, or, or gain a nuanced perspective on, on hunting and what that means and who it is that's hunting. Because uh, I, maybe that goes back to a, a sexist kind of, of view on, on who hunters are, but just the sheer fact that there's a woman that's hunting instead, it just changes this perspective. On the majority of people that are that are spectators to this, uh, yeah, and it, it feels it, it seems much less. It seems much less confrontational. Much less, much less. Yeah. Because we, as 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 guys, I think that there is a a tendency 
to especially when uh, trying to defend or or reason the arguments around uh, hunting or fishing mm-hmm. to be more aggressive in nature. Yeah, and that's a, no, that's a historic thing. Absolutely. I mean, we are the ones who got sent off to war traditionally. You know, we 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 have just that image itself. You don't have to. You don't have to be a history not to understand that it was the men that killed. You know, it's the men that goes out and says the dispute with the neighbor a hundred years ago and and put a pistol to his head or sword or baronet through the heart. You know, it's us that did that. So violence uh, in that sense, which many people are associating hunting with violence, uh, is is it's been seen as being ingrained into our DNA as as males. Uh, and that argument, uh, that uh, that barrier, that hindrance for a constructive and emotional uh, uh, conversation about uh, what it is and and who it is that's hunters, uh, who we are, is is uh, being eliminated just by the sheer fact that there's a woman. So I'm 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 hopeful that uh, a lot of women around the the globe will will take out that responsibility as as well as as the rest of the hunters as males we need to do um i hope with the generation shifts um that are coming within the hunting industry within the next five to ten years i hope that um the younger generations your your my generations and the, the younger even the millennials now that are uh, we're seeing a, a, a big um, group of millennials now actually seeking these kind of experiences where hunting being one of them. Uh, I hope that these people, uh, these fellow hunters and, and outdoor um, enthusiasts will, will help us get a more um, emotional and nuanced perspective on, on, the, on hunting. I really hope so mm. because we need it. Dramatically, otherwise, I don't think we're going to have hunting in uh, in maybe not so far future in many different. Yeah, areas. no, it's very that's very true, and I I wonder, and I find myself asking this question internally a lot, is that if it was no longer, if for whatever reason through the rules and regulations that, that uh, different countries enforced, it wasn't physically possible to take a bow or take a gun and harvest your own meat from the land. And maybe it could only be done uh, for management purposes, but from a a recreational standpoint, whether that's just society's view of it, where they just cannot stand uh, this uh, moral conundrum of somebody wanting to be able to do that for Mm -hmm. themselves and for their own enjoyment, when you and I and, and most people, especially in the Western world who hunt, can exchange that time that they would be hunting or fishing for going to the the shop to go and get it. We don't need to do it. There's something Mm -hmm. much deeper than that. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what truly would be lost if we weren't doing it anymore, if no one was doing it anymore. What What would be fundamentally missing in our our societies? and cultures if that had been removed and we relied solely on on agriculture instead 
It's a very well, big question. That yeah, it's a big question, but I think it's a very it's a very valid question and something that I am contemplating uh, frequently. Um, I'll I'll circle back to why um, we see it in different ways. We see it now when people are gravitating towards the cities, when urbanization is is sprawling and and everybody is losing connection to the natural world. Um, we don't have advocacy for it anymore. We don't when when uh, this discussion is it's it's almost so trivial and that uh, that it it hurts to continue to talk about it. But if we go into a supermarket and grab a piece of protein out of the the, the desk, and we have absolutely no emotional connection to it, none then we're not an advocate for it anymore. We really don't care. We don't give a shit. We don't give a shit if this chicken uh, was pumped up with hormones and it's eight weeks old and it should die when it was uh, double that age, uh, when his legs were both broken, or, or this, his fellow chicken next to it, legs were broken because they pumped up with hormones and they grow so fast that the bones can't hold their weight. Uh, we are not advocates for it when when polluters go in and uh, deplete our natural resources and and we dig for oil and we leave uh, we frack uh, to get the gas out and we leave all the chemicals in the soil and it leaks into the rivers. We don't care about it anymore. So that is what I think is going to be lost. There's something that's going to be lost as uh, in us as humans. And it's that connection and understanding that we are part and we are responsible for something that's so much bigger than we are. Um, one of the things that I do here occasionally is that I go out and because I live in a rural area, uh, I don't have light pollution or very, very little light pollution. And at night I stand there. Occasionally I look up into the sky and I see the Milky Way and the stars and you you start to reflect and understand that you are part of something that's so much bigger than yourself and that understanding of the of of being a part of something in natural world will disappear and i think that that will be um be the end of of nature and the outdoors as we know it yeah so yeah, if it's we don't pretty, if I'm, we don't have a reason if we don't yeah. have a reason anymore if we don't have a reason now or an understanding, mm. if we don't feel yeah, it, I, I think, you know. It's I, a, then I think that's uh, – what you said there, though, is really important because I think very often there there is maybe a, a misperception that uh, people who advocate for, for hunting or fishing want everybody to do it. And that is absolutely not the case because I think, well, for a start, not everybody can do it because it's there's not enough land for everyone to do it. There's not enough resources for everyone to do it. But I think an appreciation of uh, the understanding and an understanding that brings exactly what you said, the respect for life on a level which you cannot – I truly believe you cannot have – as deep a respect for life if you are not prepared to take it yourself. And I know that there are plenty of people out there who have never uh, knowingly killed anything that they would, but themselves that they would then go and put on, put on their plate and they might be 
massive advocates for uh, wildlife and, and animal welfare and, and be signing all the petitions for battery farmed chickens and, and uh, better welfare for cows. And that's great. We need more of that. But the, the profound respect that you get when you know that you are the re- person that is responsible for ending that life by choice is something that will never be matched just with knowledge alone. And the be- I think the best thing that we can hope is that just as you've been doing and, and are con- continue to try and do is provide information and education for people to to try and understand that part of the world better, that part of the world where humans still interact with nature because so many of us don't anymore. And it's those people who, who interact with nature who can help those people who don't necessarily have the opportunity to understand that better. And sometimes that involves hunting. Sometimes that involves gathering. Sometimes that involves fishing. And I think... Sometimes that, that, that involves going out and, and catching one of your chickens that are really cute and chopping off their head. And it, it does, yeah. Exactly. Half after, your arm after, off it's, ass after and pulling out the guts and <laughs> then a, When you're five it, years you know? old, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. And this use of, of wild resources is something that we should hold up in incredibly high esteem and something that we should all be striving for. Now, I, I am not so naive to suggest that we can supply uh, wild resources in terms of of meat and protein to the masses of the seven and a half or eight billion people that are on the planet and increasing you know rapidly every day I, I I understand that that is not possible but a an appreciation of the fact that we can still access wild resources and we should still access wide wild resources because it because it is the one it is the one uh, aspect of the cultures that exist in many different cultures around the world that truly can be sustainable, and that is very much missing. I think it's it's a it's a puzzle piece that is missing in the conversation, where we should be proud to be able to say that we are co- contributing to our country, my, my country here in Scotland. We should be proud as hunters that we are contributing, however many. Uh, hundreds of thousands of tons of wild meat into butchers and into shops every year, and we don't need to replace that protein with with agriculture. Well, That's I mean, a massive it, positive in my mind. No, it, it, it's of course, absolutely. I mean, we can have an environmental assessment of what that actually means. How many how many tons of CO two gases that there's. Does that actually save? Um, I know we are probably guilty that some of it is is equaled out or balanced out with the amount of, of gear that we like to <laughs> go true, out and purchase. True, yeah. But uh, you know, there's um, there's an animal welfare, there's an environmental uh, point in this. Um, everybody going back one generation to my parents' generation, uh, everybody all around Denmark, I'm sure, knew a farmer. There was somebody in the family that was a farmer. They had connections or uh, touch point with nature on a different level that we do today. And when we don't have that anymore, I have this discussion so many times about uh, buying organic. 
ah, but it's a scheme, it's a scam, and, uh, you know, half of it is not organic anyway, and, um, and the perspective is just not there. I'm really hoping with this generation, uh, these younger generations, that we are going to see a dramatic shift uh, where we're gonna start, uh, where we're gonna start seeking these connections again. Where we're gonna start taking more responsibilities, and and uh, the data is is showing that we are going in that direction. But that's only parts of the world. The biggest challenge is uh, the biggest uh, uh, the the areas of the world where the population is exploding and expanding the most. And uh, they're just uh, thinking about the day-to-day life and and putting food on the survival. table and deplete yeah. survival and depleting the resources. We, I mean, we don't have to. I think we all seen seen pictures and footage of of India, for example, in certain areas of uh, of India where the trash is just floating in the streets. Oh, know, I've been there and experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's we're going back to talking about the trash issue before, but you know, we have. There's so many bigger challenges that will all benefit. We would all benefit uh, as hunters, as uh, as fellow humans uh, on this planet from a deeper connection with nature and getting in there. Whether or not you are a hunter or or a fisherman, or you're just taking a hike, or or somehow paying tribute and reconnecting and putting your your feet on on the soil or in the grass. Um, yeah. Danny, I am I am conscious of the fact that I have kept you on this podcast for already an hour and a half. Uh, I think we're just going to have to do another one at some point. But as a way to kind of bring it to a close, and it's something I, I we mentioned offline uh, a couple of days ago when we were hooking this podcast up, I think it's probably quite a nice way to, to bring this to, to a close with everything that we've just talked about in the last, particularly in the last 20 minutes, is that I, I think one of the the great threats and dangers to the the continuation of uh, people's ability to, to hunt, and, and particularly if we're worried about what the perception of hunting is, is this horrible. I hate this coming out of my mouth. This this idea of trophy hunting because I, I, we just hear this trophy hunting phrase, trophy hunting, trophy hunting, trophy hunting all the time, and we see it in the papers. And I, I bring it up particularly with you because. Uh, you wrote a story uh, for Modern Huntsman a couple of uh, volumes ago uh, that was based in Switzerland and it was to do with hunting ibex. And we saw a week or two weeks ago that one particular area, uh, a region in in Switzerland, has banned trophy hunting by foreign hunters. But it, my understanding from the reading that I've done on it is it's very specific. There, the the local community there do not want foreign people coming in and exchanging what was actually quite large sums of money to be able to go and hunt an animal essentially for uh, for for the trophy for for the horns these magnificent animals which are ibex, um, but they haven't actually changed anything really fundamentally apart from what seems like something that's going to damage them economically, because the same amount of hunting and the same amount of uh, or proportion of male ibex are probably going to be hunted every year anyway as part of their management principles there it's just that they will only be able to be hunted by the local people what what do you make of that story and what do you make of the trophy hunting d- debate and and what damage that does to hunting as a as a human experience no uh. 
I don't know where to start on this. Um, well, let's uh, let's start with just talking about the situation in Switzerland and in that canton, uh, which the uh, which the areas are called, the regions are called. Um, it is the last region in Switzerland that actually, up until um, up until the end of this year, allowed for foreign hunters to come in and and hunt the uh, the male ibex in that region. And there was a certain amount of tax that was allocated out to foreign hunters. Um, I think there's two two uh, arguments to that story, um, and one of them is, of course, that um, fundamentally I don't see anything wrong with people coming in, uh, hunters coming in from different places and experiencing a hunt in in a foreign country and this in this case in Switzerland, going hunting for the ibex. Um, if the money is allocated uh, back into preservation and so wildlife management, etc., um, that's okay with me fundamentally. Or, um, but at the same time, I have to say the hunting is not being forbidden there. The ibex, as you mentioned, the same amount of ibex will be tagged uh, um, tacked out every single year. So the same amount of ibex will be hunted every year, but it will be by the local hunters. And that, I must say that I kind of support because one of the challenges that we have in hunting today is that um, the, the majority of hunters today are um, aiming at, dreaming at, um, going on big game hunts, which Ibex would be a good example of. So when you have all these hunters uh, or some hunters coming into the world that has no or very little appreciation of the easier access hunt going out with your dog and your son for pheasant for two hours in the afternoon, uh, that damages us as hunters as a collective group and there's no doubt if the interest is not sparked for that kind of hunting, um, we will see a sharper decline in, the, in hunters because there is, there is a, absolutely a big group of hunters that will never be able to fulfill their aspirations of going on a wild game hunt. There's a lot of hunters that will not be able to do that. So if we take away the, um, the desire to and the want and the understanding and the, uh, the drive to go out and have these day-to-day -day hunts and getting that experience, which is uh, equally valuable to us as hunters, um, I think uh, it's challenging for us as a, as a group. And when you take away a certain amount of animals, such as ibex, from a local region and saying, well, these amount of ibex, you cannot hunt them here. So when local hunters understand that they have a very slim chance of actually uh, getting a chance to draw a tag and hunt one of these ibexes that lives in their own backyard and somebody else is coming in and paying $20,000 to shoot, uh, 20,000 euros to shoot an, an ibex that essentially belongs to the people, belongs to the locals. Um, I think the, the support for hunting will decrease. I think the public support of hunting will decrease. 
I think uh, the the hunter support of hunting will decrease. I think the when there's not that um, when you can't aspire to go out in your own mountains around you and actually have a chance at hunting this amazing animal, this incredible majestic animal. Um, I think it takes away from hunting, and I think uh, that will that will be have a negative impact on hunting in general. Um, yeah, it's a it's a fascinating perspective that, and it it reminds me to remove myself from purely the numbers because it, it's very easy to be continually drawn into the the hard black and white of uh, the economics or the yeah. science behind yeah, something. Yeah, but many times that, the, the, uh, the social hard, importance. black and white is not black and white anyway. You know, no, it's, uh, it's not. A lot of it goes to administration, and what the fuck is administration? It's, uh, <laughs> you know, it just disappears into a black hole. If we have, in certain countries that I have, um, uh, I'm familiar with, uh, there's a, there's a, a 100% transparency. Like in Denmark, for example, our, we know exactly what every single euros uh, that is being that's coming in in uh, hunting fees, in license fees. We know exactly what every single euro is going to, and it's going directly back into uh, preservation of wildlife, uh, preservation and building of habitat, education, etc. Um, but the majority of other countries that I know of don't have that transparency. There is a, there is nothing that indicates where that money is going to. So that the, the financial argument is not always that easy to to rely on. And I think uh, I think it's important that we remember that the people around you uh, should be encouraged and inspired to become hunters or go out and and hunt themselves. Yeah, it, it, this goes to to something that I've mentioned so many times on the podcast, and normally in reference actually to to hunting in Africa, is that if you don't uh, create a system where the the local people and communities who are living within that landscape and and sharing their their day and their night and and the landscape with the wildlife that exists with them, if they don't have a reason to be okay with that if they don't have a, a reason to protect those uh, those ecosystems and and those species then they won't they won't no it's yeah. it's as simple as that and yeah. you can and be then it the and then it collapses and you can yeah. be the best person in the world the reality of the planet is that the things that exist around us exist around us because we want them to be there and so, yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating perspective that uh, I, I suppose the only thing that I would add to it would be that I, I hope that they can still have a system where it, it costs money to manage those systems. I know that they do it incredibly well there. It's uh, amazingly professional is that there's still enough money coming in from other sources for that management and level of, of care and the science behind it can still be funded. Yeah, of course. I mean, but that's a that's a specifically a debate that's a, that's a very common in specifically in the United States. Uh, um, you probably have have, have uh, read about that or heard about that uh, from many different uh, people and and outlets. Um, it, it's a constant uh, conversation that's being had 
you know, who's going to who's gonna take over the amount of money that's coming in and being generated by hunting if you forbid hunting uh, in a certain geographical area? Uh, who's going to come in and actually fund the management? Are you willing to pay uh, 2% extra in taxes or... Um, you know, what other environmental groups are going to come in and, and take over that financial responsibility to keep um, keep the wild places and the wildlife managed? Yeah, that's and, an and important if, question. And if there's no value, then other people will see value in that land, uh, depletion of natural resources or, or basically simply expanding cities and, and, and building on it. Uh, you know, then then our land disappears. Then it doesn't have the value. Danny, with that insight delivered to my podcast listeners, <laughs> I think we we should draw this to a close, and uh, we should just do this again sometime soon. I hope that as travel gets better, we can do this with a beer in my hand and a beer in your hand, and, and that we can will be gradually, gradually become more pissed as the show goes on, because it'll probably get better that way. <laughs> I've done that with Tyler before, and I've I done... certainly look forward to that. I had, uh, I had quite some good times with some Scottish friends of mine, and I know um, how entertaining you guys become. Uh, when, you, well, when you start getting uh, a little bit on the tipsy side. So. Do you like whiskey? Uh, nope, I don't. Oh, okay. Like I was going to say because I don't, but I always get given whiskey, so uh, I have loads of whiskey. So no, if you'd like whiskey, no, I have I a cabinet full of it. <laughs> okay, no, I always uh, kind of consider myself a bit of a, a pussy for lack of better words because uh, I don't <laughs> drink whiskey. I don't drink whiskey and I don't smoke a pipe. I think that's two major flaws in my personality that I, I mean, need to yeah, figure out if what you, to do. I think maybe that's two <laughs> things that come with age. <laughs> I don't know. As I'm as I'm getting a little bit older now, there's other things that comes with age too. But I think that's a, <laughs> again an off air conversation. So. <laughs> Danny, thank you so much for coming on today. I I, I actually I genuinely cannot wait for our next conversation. Thank you very much, Byron, and uh, and talk to you soon. Hope to see you soon. Thank you once again for listening. Join me again in a week's time when we take another walk into the wilderness.